Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thanks for joining us to this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with our experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Amy Holmes, and joining me for today's episode is Dr. Stephen Eckel, Associate Dean and Professor at the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy, and Dr. Anne Marie Walton, Associate Professor at the Duke University School of Nursing, about compliance with USP Chapter 800 and best practices to minimize employee exposure to hazardous drugs. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. You both did an excellent webinar back in October, and we had so much audience engagement that we had uh, questions left over at the end that we couldn't get to. So I thought that would be a good place to start with our podcast today. Um, There were a couple of questions that came in um, just asking about how do you address crushing or splitting oral hazardous drugs at the bedside? I'm happy to take that one on. So um... First of all, I think it's just so interesting to look at what has happened to oral antineoplastic drugs over time. So as of 2017, more than 35% of antineoplastic drugs were given via the oral route. And then between 2018 and 2022, 34 new oral agents were approved. So now there are more than 88 oral drugs on the market. Most of these agents are given in the home or um, sent home with patients and given in sort of what we would consider non-traditional settings, not in the hospital. So we have to start thinking more and more about educating patients and their caregivers about safe handling at home and thinking not only about pills, but about blister packs and, and disposal of packaging. But speaking specifically about handling these drugs in the healthcare setting, intact capsules can be placed inside a medicine cup with one pair of chemotherapy rated gloves. Those chemotherapy rated gloves and medicine cups should then go with the hazardous drug contaminated waste. If, however, that oral agent is not intact or it's not in its uh, unit dose form, it would require two pair of chemotherapy rated gloves, a gown, and a face shield if splashing were possible, like, for example, with a liquid antineoplastic or hazardous drug. If the drug had to be manipulated, it should be done in pharmacy. And if that's not possible, then the nurse should wear an N95 or a PAPR. I'll also mention here for anyone working with orals on the actual nursing unit that multi-use pill crushers and mortars and pestles are not recommended for these drugs. There are some pill crushing devices that can reduce the possibility of contamination by keeping the medication in a closed bag while being crushed, which is what USP recommends. And some facilities also have something called a crush cart that has all of the necessary PPE in one location too. So there's a lot to consider when we think about the handling of oral anti-neoplastics or oral hazardous drugs. That's interesting, Amory. I've never heard that term crush cart, but I kind of like that uh, um, from a sort of an idea of you need to go here each time you're ready to crush a medication. But I want to go back to an earlier comment you made, thought was intriguing around the growth of the number of oral anti-neoplastics and, and, and thinking through sort of its impact um, on on sort of home practice. So this, a lot of what we've tried to talk through here is safe handling of medications and we're approaching it from the healthcare side. But 
what you're sort of suggesting is there might need to be safe handling education and guidelines giving to patients and their family members, the caregivers who will be giving the medications, and there's a potential risk for exposure within the home setting. Is that is that what I should should read into this? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, there are some studies that have been done. Um, predominantly in Japan, showing there's contamination in the home with chemotherapy and even contamination in the bodily fluids of family members. So we have to be really thoughtful and strategic about education of patients and families and how they're using these drugs at home. So for for the pharmacy audience, it sounds like something we should add to our counseling specifically around the anti-neoplastics. And my guess is this innovation of oral medications is not going to to abate. It's going to continue to increase. And we, as we know, you know, hospital at home model, even other type of medications could be given in the home setting that would be hazardous. Mm-hmm. Great point. Well, thank you for that discussion. Very interesting. Another topic that came up in a couple of questions related to um, spiking bags or priming. What thoughts do you have or what would you like to share with our audience about that as a follow-up to the earlier presentation? Thanks. I'll try to take that one too. So I remember specifically during the, the course of the webinar, someone brought up this, this newer concept of circle priming. And I've actually received a couple of emails since our webinar as well about this. And so what I would say is that we really need more research about circle priming. It's a fairly new practice and we don't know all of the things that we need to know yet. Ideally, the pharmacy should prime the tubing and apply a CSTD to the end of the tubing within the CPEC. Um, But if facilities are using circle priming, the focus needs to be on microbial contamination, aseptic technique, and also safe handling practices to control for potential exposure. We also have to keep in mind that our primary goal when we're administering these drugs is to ensure that patients receive the total dose that's prescribed. So in considering circle priming, if that is an approved practice in your facility, those are definitely some things to keep in mind. So Anne-Marie, for the audience, can you explain what circle priming is? So circle priming involves a priming that is happening outside of the CPEC and at the point of administration. And the, I think, intent is about efficiency and being able to do some of the priming work outside of the CPEC. I can't speak to the specifics of exactly how it's done because I've actually watched a couple of videos online of educators who are trying to teach this. And that's exactly my concern is that it's being shown in a variety of ways. And that would, and with a variety of different types of tubing and types of CSTD. And all of that is going to lead to some variability in its safety. Yeah, I mean, ever since I've been in pharmacy, that has been a an area of discussion between nursing and pharmacy of who's going to prime, where's the workload going to come from that does it, uh, what's our method for doing it. Uh, but I think you're demonstrating why pharmacy needs to do it, not only because we can minimize the potential potential for exposure to the hazardous medication, but also it's done safely and appropriately. And I love that you both are able to share your different perspectives. 
So a lot of these conversations seem to be about chemo agents, especially uh, the examples that were given, I guess, in the webinar. Um, but some of the more practical challenges related to 800 compliance seem to be with non-chemo hazardous drugs that are non-chemotherapy. What can you tell us about specific considerations for non-chemotherapy hazardous drugs? Well, it's hard for me to always use the term hazardous drugs, and I, I slip sometimes into chemotherapy and anti-neoplastics, but what we've recognized is the concept of hazardous drugs is a much broader category than anti-neoplastics or chemotherapy medications because there are some medications not used to treat oncology diseases, but can, through exposure to the healthcare worker or to anybody else, could have potential hazards associated. And I think that was nicely, originally um, sort of brought forward by NIOSH. They, they published sort of a list of medications that have some level of concern for hazardous exposure. And then you as an organization would have to sort of then come up with policies and procedures around that. And, uh, and that, for a while, that list of medications were, was routinely updated. Now, pharmacy community has been waiting for that next NIOSH update list. And, and uh, while we're waiting for it, um, you know, we continue to sort of operate under the last one that's, that's been published. But, but the idea is, is that especially for the non-chemotherapy medications, we have to come up with a policy and procedure on how that would be approached. So Anne-Marie talked earlier about the crush cart or coming up with policies and practices on the floor. The other option could be um, pharmacy takes on the splitting of tablets. And so we would split them in a controlled environment. We would package them away and give them and present them to the nurse in the form that would be administered. Or you could do that around crushing it so that because we're a controlled environment, we can do that in a consistent way as opposed to a diluted environment on the nursing floor where you've got a lot more individuals sort of participating in that. But a lot of that, I think, emanates from a interdisciplinary dialogue between nursing, pharmacy, and other individuals around what is our approach for protecting the healthcare worker. And we think about it quickly on the chemotherapy because that is always the focus. But when we broaden it to hazardous drugs, it opens up a lot more medications. And so um, each of our organizations needs to be actively reviewing the NIOSH list, ensuring that our practices are appropriate, and that if we find breaches, we continue to educate and continue to implement new systems and technologies to minimize that risk. Exactly. So what we want to do is protect our healthcare workers, as you mentioned, and one tool that we have to do that are uh, closed system transfer devices, which we, um, you spoke about in the webinar. What standards are available to use in selecting CSTDs? Yeah, that standard issue is, 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 a, um, is, a, is, a, is a dialogue, and, and um, we've tried to identify and coming up with with, uh, with different ways to look at it, I would recommend, first of all, pulling the literature. Uh, what is the evidence? Now, there's a tremendous amount of evidence, pretty much almost, if not all, the technologies that are out there, but it gives you sort of the first blush around the 
sort of what, how you might look at the effectiveness of a closed system transfer device. And Marie, other thoughts on aspects of information they might look at? Yeah, sure. So um, NIOSH is still working on their test protocol, which evaluates C this, how well the CSTD contains hazardous drugs. So an, an independent testing method for CSTD performance is still needed. And I think that's the challenge for most folks is that lots of facilities are kind of waiting for this independent testing protocol. But I think Stephen makes a great point that there is a lot of literature out there um, that can help you make decisions for your organization. And it we, we have a lot of data to suggest that closed system transfer devices are very helpful as an engineering control. And so waiting for this um, testing protocol to take action is, is not the best course of action. We, we would recommend use of a closed system transfer device. And in fact, USP 100 recommends use of a closed system transfer device now at the point of administration for sure. So this is something to take action on um, soon as we, as we gear up for November. I've always been amazed at what approach an organization might use to select their closed system transfer device, because there are a lot of different devices currently on the U.S. market. There's even more different devices in, in other markets. But I've talked to lots of institutions that select have selected pretty much all of them. And when you start asking them, everybody has a different approach. And from my perspective, there's not one right selection or 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 that it, it's what's most comfortable for the organization and what do you value um, and what are the prime drivers but uh, what I have I learned early in my career when I first implemented CSTDs is that sometimes nursing looks at the preferred device very differently than pharmacy does and uh, there were um, you know sometimes some contentious conversations around Nursing didn't like the device we selected, so they would just remove it. Well, that doesn't give it help anybody out. And so then it became, okay, well, do we need to relook at the potential one we chose? Do we need to look at it again? But then pediatrics had a different approach than, than, than adult nursing. So there's a lot of different things to think through. But I think Anne-Marie, sort of from my perspective, hit it right. You need to have something because some protection is better than no protection. But then as it relates to what one you select, the literature, uh, ideally a performance uh, standard would be nice to continue to help ensure, are there differences? If so, what are those differences? But at the end of the day, um, we're trying to help our patients out uh, in ensuring that they are uh, having really, at the end, of, uh, they're, they're being protected from the potential risk of exposure. And so this can help minimize that. And not only our patients, but our healthcare workers who come to work in these spaces and our healthcare environments for all of the visitors um, and other healthcare workers who are in that space who aren't directly in contact with these antineoplastic drugs or chemotherapy or hazardous drugs, but come into contact with contamination in the environment. I mean, I think that's one of the great things about USP 800, that its goal is to reduce exposure for patients for healthcare workers and for the environment at large. And I think CSTDs are an important control measure in that goal. It's funny you say that early on, I remember some, some studies that uh, did white, white testing in desks, in elevators, and they were finding contamination. And, uh, and, and, and you know, that, those, they can get everywhere if you're not 
you're not sort of controlling it at the point of, of, of preparation. That before it was more like healthcare workers walking around with now we could think about, well, maybe the delivery of those medications because we know the packages are contaminated when they come from the wholesaler. And, and so, yeah, the, the, when you start looking for it, you sometimes can find it in unlikely places. Intriguing information. Thank you for sharing. So 800, USP Chapter 800 is going to be um, final soon. Uh, any thoughts on how best to prepare an organization? Well, we hope it's going to be final soon, and that's what uh, USP is telling us, so, so no reason to, 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 to not think that. But uh, I don't know. I sort of reflect back that there's an old proverb that says the you know, best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. So ideally, your organization has already been preparing and is ready for USP 800 going live. But human nature is what it is. My guess is we still have a few areas that we haven't looked at, and especially with the significant leadership and employee turnover in organizations, uh, some of the institutional knowledge of what was being done might not be there as much. And so I'm a big fan of gap analyses and um, great project for students to learn through that or residents, but come up with a comprehensive gap analysis on what is the standard? How are we doing it as an organization? Because it can highlight what are the what are the areas that uh, need priority attention. My other piece with that is it might also elicit which ones are maybe more difficult to to achieve. And 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 getting a new clean room put in is not something that happens really quick, and uh, and and it takes a lot of time. So Focusing on the bigger, the longer projects, bigger ticket items earlier gives you the opportunity that when when the deadline of go live hits, your organization has met it. For me, the other the other piece is that it's not pharmacy alone. I, I uh, it was great that uh, Amy Amy when she introduced me from UNC and Marie from Duke, uh, what. What she didn't introduce is that Anne-Marie and I used to work together, and we actually helped implement closed system transfer devices many years ago together. I kind of find it interesting that we're back here back here uh, sharing, sharing this opportunity to educate. But the relationships we formed, and she and I never always agreed on all the decisions that we were making, but we were able to sort of work through them. And it's a team here. It's not one discipline doing one way, another discipline doing another way. And so we have to make sure we're collaborating as an organization between the multi, multiple disciplines because of, of the reasons why, why we, have to, we have regulations in the first place. Thanks, Stephen. I, th- I, I agree. You made some great points. And I, I was doing the mental math as you were talking. I think we, we worked together on this 15 years ago, which also just makes me feel, feel old. But, um, but look back gratefully at how much has changed in this field in the last 15 years, um, how novel closed system transfer devices seemed at, this, at the time, and how much progress we've made in keeping healthcare workers and, and others in the work environment safe. And so I can't wait to see what the next 15 years ahead of us will bring. I just want to um, make a couple of additional points. So, so Stephen talked about this 
gap analysis. And I wanted to mention without mentioning particular companies or products that there are lots of checklists out there that will help you see what the parts of USP 800 are in a in a checklisty kind of fashion that makes it really easy to look at the list and say, um, is, is my facility doing this or not? Where are our gaps? Where do we need to work? Um, I'll also echo Stephen's comment about the need for a multidisciplinary committee. And that in and of itself is in USP 800, that one of the very first things to do is to have this hazardous drugs working group. And as we know, with any group work, there's that period of storming and norming and performing. And so you kind of want to have your group together and functioning and working before the problems arise um, so that you can quickly go into problem solving mode, um, you know, with anything new that comes your way. So I think, as Stephen said, you know, long ago would have been better, but if you didn't do it already, now's the time to get that multidisciplinary group together and to think about everyone who should be at the table. So, you know, we're here representing nursing and pharmacy, but as Stephen mentioned, we know that people deliver these drugs into the institution and it's on packaging. So we have to think about our colleagues who are in shipping and receiving. We have to think about the folks who work kind of downstream of the drug, the nursing assistants, the environmental services workers, even the health unit coordinators who are in environments where this um, contamination exists and persists, right? And who is representing them on some of these multidisciplinary committees. So we have to think um, pretty broadly about who we invite to the table. That's great perspective. Thank you. And I, I'm glad that you shared that history that you two have of working on this at the same institution. That's great. I'm glad that you had this opportunity for a little reunion and it's been to our, um, our viewers benefit as well. So given the fact that both of you have been working in this area for a while, are there any recommendations on how to lead your organization toward a successful outcome that maybe we haven't already touched on? Sure. I think the key is to, it, it's a nice segue from the last question, right? I think what is at the heart of getting ready is figuring out who your players are going to be at your organization that are going to make up that multidisciplinary committee um, and making sure that they're working well together and that they're meeting regularly and considering the issues. I think it would be ideal if that's the group and I, that's what USP 800 recommends that these are the folks who are responsive to, you know, doing surface wipe sampling, for example, as a measure of exposure control and containment, making sure that that's happening every six months, kind of reviewing those results, um, having conversations as a group. And so I think, um, Success is going to mean having that working group in place, having them performing strong and well, having plans for regular environmental monitoring, and then also plans of for what to do and to remediate prior to the time when you need that. I think also continuing to reconvene as issues arise and to think about what we need to not only do what's recommended, but to do what's safest and what's best for all of us, even beyond uh, what's in USP 800. There have been lots of folks moving towards what's in USP 800 long before it was a thing. I mean, ONS, HOPA, lots of NIOSH, lots of big organizations have had similar recommendations for years. 
And so people have been moving in this direction simply because it's what's right. Um, and we need to kind of go back to that, that value of doing what's right and, and doing the best we can for safety. Yeah, for me, for me, it's always about listening, um, that, that there are a lot of people that have valuable input and perspectives that are around the table and, uh, and, and listening from them and uh, using them to help develop your strategy. The other thing I've, I've learned is that, um, one, you don't want to rush, but at the same time, you don't want to delay. And so how do you work as a group? Uh, Emory mentioned the sort of the storming, norming, performing. How do you sort of go along that that continuum in a way that gets you to the right place at the right time? But the other thing is, is we will make you might make wrong decisions along the way, or more information came in, or more science has been developed, and that's okay. You just take that information, you make an adaptation based upon it, and then you continue to refine. You had protection, you had safety mechanisms put in. But now that we have a better one and, uh, and, and the science is continuing to evolve, I, I've been really both surprised and impressed over the last decade plus how much research has been done really globally uh, around this area. I mean, when, when I was first looking at implementing CSTDs, um, you know, most of the literature was out of Europe and maybe one or two studies that had been in AJHP, but, but that was about all we had. But now you... Emory mentioned Japan, Canada, uh, lots of areas of the world have been publishing a lot of research, and it is consistently the same. Uh, there's high degrees of exposure to healthcare workers, and there are strategies one can use to implement to reduce it. So um, we just need to continue to learn. We need to make those decisions and continue to evolve. So it's uh, it's an exciting field. I, I'm I, it's not going to end with USP 800 coming out. The, the science is going to continue to evolve. So just the beginning, really, as we um, embark on this. Well, I think that's all the time that we have for today. Um, I want to thank Dr. Stephen Eckel and Dr. Anne-Marie Walton for joining us today to discuss compliance with USP Chapter 800 and best practices to minimize employee exposure to hazardous drugs. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the USP Chapter 800 Assessment of Risk Toolkit, the Research Resource Center, and more. Thanks again for joining us for the episode of Hot Topics in Pharmacy. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official podcast for more great content. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP.